You probably heard this quote. Uh, it's a very famous quote by C.S. Lewis. He wrote this. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. <laughs> that is one of those statements that you hear it and you go, I know that's right and I don't like it. It's one of those things that you say, I don't want to have to go through that. I don't like it. I don't, uh, but I know it's true. And what we, you know, many times we go through difficult times in our lives just because we live in a fallen world and life is hard and there's a tainted gene pool and we catch diseases and things along those lines. We get old and things like that happen. But there's also times where we suffer because there's evil people in the world. You know, you just, you just have to open your newspaper and just about, I, I imagine this week we'll see another person that will do unspeakable things. And you say, how can a person do that stuff? How can, how can there be such evil? And then the, the question that kind of goes along with that, there's two questions that really go with that. Number one, the question is not, not why, is there an e- why are there evil people in the world, but why... Why does it sometimes it seem like bad people do better than the good people? <laughs> that the people that don't love God seem to be prospering and the people who do love God seem to be getting pummeled. Or the third question, this is really behind all of these questions, is why doesn't God do something about it? Why doesn't he just stop it? Why doesn't he just figure it out and stop it? Why does he squash all the evil people. Why doesn't he prevent all this from happening? So, so there's a lot of questions packed in there, and that really resonates with the heart of the psalmist. We're going to look at Psalm 10 uh, this weekend, and Psalm 10 is one of those psalms that uh, really is a dual psalm. That really, they're nine and ten go together. And so in our modern translations, our modern Bibles, we have them separated. We have Psalm 9 and Psalm 10, but essentially they went together. But we're going to really focus on Psalm 10 a little bit. So whether you're here at Kennedy, whether you're at Rorschach campus or online, if you'd like to turn to Psalm 10 and follow along with me, I just want to read the first verse. Let me just read the first verse. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And there's a lot of people. There's atheists and agnostics and others that say there is no God and proof that there is no God that is that God hasn't stepped in and stopped some of the evil, horrible things that we've seen. The psalmist is asking that question right here. God, why don't you step in? Why don't you step up? Why don't you do something? Why don't you do something? So it's a really interesting question he asks But yet, he goes on in verses 2 through 11. And he does show how God is active in the world. Notice what he says. In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak, who are caught in schemes, in the schemes he devises. You know, just think of the school shootings that that we've experienced over the last few years. And and let me read that last, that first line again, verse 2. In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways 
always prosper. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all of his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears no one will ever do me harm. His mouth is full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near villages. From ambush, from ambush, he murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret and his victim for his victims. Like a lion in cover, he lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. In other words, he's almost taunting God, saying, God isn't going to touch me. God can't touch me. He may say, there is no God. I'm an agnostic. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. Well, what do we know? What, as it describes this person, what do we know about this person? Well, first, they're arrogant. They're arrogant. They, they are schemers. They have plans. And they're not good plans. They're evil plans. They're plans for destruction. Do you remember the verse? Many of you use this as a life verse. It says, I have plans for you. Good plans, says the Lord. These are not good plans. These are evil plans. But the, number three, they're proud. They're very proud. They're very proud. They, and number four, they reject any notion of God. They say, if there is a God, he's powerless. He can't touch me. Look at all I've gotten away with. If there is a God, he should do something, but he's not doing anything. They maintain a false confidence. And they leave broken people in their wake. And th- this is an evil person. You know, you can say, well, they had a bad, uh, they were in a bad home or all this stuff, but there are people that have been raised in decent homes, and they are just absolutely evil incarnate. And we've seen it. We've seen it. Well, how does God respond to that? Look at verse 12. The psalmist cries out, Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God, and do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? By the way, I think there's a lot of people in the world today who aren't necessarily wicked, who don't believe God is ever going to call them to give an account. We'll talk more about that in a moment. He says, but you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed so that merely earthly mortals will never strike terror. So what are some lessons that we can learn from this psalm? What do we learn about God? What do we learn about us? And what do we learn about how we handle this, this, this problem of the right, the wicked prospering and, and the, the desire for judgment is really what it comes down to. 
And, and the question is, God, when are you going to judge the wicked? When are you going to judge them? So the first thing we learn is judgment delayed is not judgment forgotten. The wicked think, I'm going to get away with this. I've gotten away with this. There's no one that can stop me. And they become arrogant. They become proud of themselves. They, they think that they're unstoppable. But they haven't, the, the, the point is, they haven't experienced any judgment up to this point. But judgment is coming. Judgment is absolutely coming. There's an axiom that's used in the legal system, and it says this, justice delayed is justice denied. Justice delayed is justice denied. Now, what do they mean by that? They mean that sometimes if somebody has done horrific things against you or your family, maybe they've taken a life or something, and, 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 and so you, maybe as an older parent, you've seen your son or daughter uh, gunned down or something like that, and it, and it comes to the point where they've delayed and delayed and delayed to the point that, that you have died. And justice has been delayed so long that you never get to see justice. You never see it. And that's what they're saying. Justice delayed is justice denied. Um, but that's not the way it works with God. And, and we see that here. Because God is taking notes. God is keeping an account. God is aware of what's going on. And one day, God is going to gather the living and the dead, and everyone will be judged. Everyone. Everyone will be judged. No one will escape his final judgment. There's a couple of verses that uh, speak to this. Hebrews 9.27, the writer of Hebrews says this, People are destined to die once, and after that, face judgment. Uh, if we're all people in here. I think that means all of us. Uh, Jesus says this. It's very interesting what he says in Luke chapter 12. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after the body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So, the, so Jesus is essentially saying to us, judgment may be delayed, but judgment is coming. And those who think they're getting away with it, this side of heaven, will not get away the other side of the grave. There is an eternal judgment coming. There is an eternal judgment coming. And, and it says here, God hears the cries of the downtrodden, the fatherless, the oppressed. He's taking notes. God sees their trouble, their grief, that the wicked have, have rained down upon them, unleashed upon the oppressed. So the question is, <clears throat> we often think, well, I want justice. I really want justice. Will you get your justice this side of heaven? Maybe. Maybe not. You may not get it this side of heaven. But one day, God will mete out his justice. You might want to hold off on seeking God's judgment. We'll talk more about that in a minute. The point is, I want you to see first is justice is done on God's timetable, not ours. God, justice is done on God's timetable. It's not ours. Secondly, there's only one judge, and I'm pretty sure it's not you. Okay. And that's true. I mean, you know, we all want justice and we all want to, uh, we, we all think we're the best ones to judge the people around us. Now, there's a, pro a major problems with that, with that concept. 
I'm so glad that God hasn't given me the power to zap people. And I'm so glad. Can you imagine if God has granted us superhero power? Maybe it's not hero power, but superpower where we can zap people when they bug us. Guy, you know, guy cuts you off, zap, you're gone. Get. <laughs> Where's John? I don't know. He's coming home from work. And never saw him. You know, he's gone. You know, he cut me off. He deserved it. Or you're at, you're, you're, you go to the refrigerator at lunchtime at work and you look for your, 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 your beautiful salad that you, you made and it's gone. And you think, I know, Mary took it. You walk over to Mary, zap, Mary, gone, dead. And all of a sudden you think, she got hers, and you walk over, you see John eating your salad, you go, sorry. <laughs> Why are we not good judges? Well, we're bad judges because we're biased. And here's the other thing. We can't even see our own bias. It's like your own bad breath or B.O. You know, you don't think you smell bad and then, you know, somebody around you goes, you know, you really, you know, hopefully it's somebody you like and likes you. And they say, you know, you kind of smell. You kind of got some bad breath. Here, here, chew some gum or something. Do something, Right? Because we can't see it. And it's the same with our bias. We're, we're really biased and we don't even see it. That's the problem. We don't think we are. We think we're the most even keel, honest, you know, fair people, but we're not. So we're, we're bad judges because of that. We're bad judges because we think, uh, we're, because we're un, uninformed. We don't know everything. We don't, we never have all the facts. You know, one of the biggest problems we have is we jump to conclusions on the basis of the percentage of facts that we have, which generally isn't very much. We've always heard one side of the story, and that one side we've heard has come through somebody who's biased. So now that's been tainted, but we think that we've gotten all the information, but we don't have all the information. We're bad judges because we're uninformed. Number three, we're bad judges because we're emotional. I mean, come on, let's be honest. Most of the time, we're not good judges because we're so emotionally involved in the situation and we can't think straight. That's why you go to a counselor. The counselor sits down with you and you, you pour your heart out. Maybe it's in a relationship. And you pour your heart out to one another. And uh, the counselor is really the only one there that can basically say, well, I'm hearing this and I'm hearing this. Uh, because they're not emotionally connected. They don't, they don't care. They're going to go home in about 30 minutes and they're done with this. And they're not going to think about it anymore. They're not emotionally tied, but you are, you're in the middle of it. And he said, she said, they said. So we are emotionally tied to it. We're bad judges because we use different scales. You never do that, do you? You never judge somebody harder than you judge yourself, do you? Ever, never, right? So when you look at other people and say they're horrible drivers, you never think about the many people that you tick off and you cut off. And, you know, I talk a lot about driving. I guess I have issues there, right? But you know what I'm saying? You, you really are. You, you really don't... Yeah. 
Here's how Paul put it. Very interesting. This is Romans chapter 2. He says this in, in Romans 2, 1 through 4. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth because he sees everything and he's not emotionally tied to it. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet you do, do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? In other words, basically Paul's making a case saying, yeah, you really shouldn't be a judge. You're not very good at it. So the point here is being a judge is above your pay grade, so knock it off. All right? Uh, number three, be careful for what you wish for because you're going to get it. Now, what do I mean by that? I think we're all, we're all on board for the wicked getting theirs. We're waiting for God to put it to them, God. Give it to them. Strike them dead. Or as we could use the old King James, smite them, Lord. Smite them all day long. Um, you know, it's all good and fine to want the return of Jesus, and we should be looking for his return and be ready for his return. But remember something. When Jesus returns, judgment is coming with him. The first time he came, he came as a suffering servant. The second time he comes, he's going to come as the Lord, King, Ruler, and Judge. Judgment is coming for them and for me and you, for us. None of us is going to get out of this. Um, What are some of the judgments uh, that we're talking about? Well, the first one we don't have to worry about, okay? This one you don't have to worry about. There's going to be a judgment of Satan and the fallen angels. They're going to be thrown in the lake of fire. So you don't have to worry about that unless you're a demon here tonight. Uh, You should be clear of that one. But the second one is for those of you that say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's the judgment seat of Christ. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. For Christians, entrance, entrance into the eternal life is already settled. Our, 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 the basis of whether we go to heaven or not is not based upon our performance. It's based upon what Christ did on the cross. So that's already settled. But there is a point where the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, that, that we will determine the degree of our eternal rewards and uh, based upon our deeds. Uh, imagine having to stand before God to give an account of how you, every word you spoke, of, of, of um, how you've used the resources of time, talent, and money that he's given to you. Because it, there's parables for that. <laughs> basically, the parable of the talents, basically, <clears throat> is one of those where... Uh, basically, it says uh, that one day Jesus is going to say, okay, I gave you these resources. What did you do with them? Now it's time to, to see how you did, right? But Paul puts it very clear. He says this, for we must all appear, not some, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. 
Paul says this in Romans chapter 14. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we, are, we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is, it is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me and every tongue acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. So this is for the believer. You're not, you could pray for God's judgment to come. You can pray for Jesus to return. But just understand, the day that you pray that Christ comes, the day that He comes is the day of judgment, not just for Satan and the angels, but for you and for me. Those of us that call ourselves Christ followers. Number three, there is the final great white throne judgment. And this is the judgment that involves unbelievers, those who have lived their lives independent from God, those who have mocked God, or those who have just said, I don't have any time for God, I don't believe in God, I don't want God in my life, I have no desire to follow Him, I have, you know, Jesus said, come follow me, I have no desire to do that. So the psalmist is talking about that person, that calculated, evil, wicked person, but it's also talking about decent people who basically will not bend the knee to Jesus this side of heaven and uh, are trying to live their lives out uh, independent of God. So throughout history, the deeds of billions have been recorded in heaven. The deeds of your life will prove that you belong or don't belong to Jesus. Look at what Jesus says in John 14, verse 23. Jesus replied, "'Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching.'" My Father will love them and will come to them and make our, we'll make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These, these words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So essentially what he's saying here is that if you love Jesus, you will follow his word. You will obey him. Jesus, why do you call me Lord? Lord, and you don't do what I've called you to do. So a follower of Jesus, the, the direction of their lives is obedience to the word of Christ, the word of God. Those who do not, do not belong to God. They're showing that they don't have faith, that they don't trust, that they don't believe. So whoever does not, the other thing it talks about is uh, in Revelation is a book of life. And it says that whoever's name is not written down in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. And uh, this is uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Um, That's pretty stark. That's pretty direct. And it's pretty significant. And uh, we don't want any of the people around us that we love and care for to do that. So we are called to warn them. We can't make them believe. We can't argue them into belief, but we can share that with them the hope and the truth. I'm always amazed at people today, and I think I'm hearing a lot from young people lately who basically say, well, I just don't believe in God. I, I, I just, uh, you know, I, I, my parents do, but it's, it's just not for me. And, and that's interesting, and I would love to sit down with that person and say, oh, well, that's interesting. So what do you believe in? Because you, you believe in something. I mean, it's not that you don't believe in God and then that's it. You believe something's going to happen when you die. Everyone believes something. So it's interesting to me that sometimes people, when they deny God and deny heaven and, and deny that Jesus died and he's the only way, it's interesting to me that they act as though they have 20 different options. 
There's only a few options. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's option. So, so the options are this. Let me give you the options really quick because people act as though, oh, there's multiple options. There's no multiple options. There's no plan B, plan C that's better. Plan A is this. Uh, plan A is you live and you die and you're done. You rot. You're a physical being. There's no spiritual world. You, you live and you die and you rot. So when you're on your deathbed, somebody will come in and say to you, you're going to die in about 10 minutes. Your life's going to be over. You're going to have no more memories of this life. And that's it. Done. Okay? That's an option. That's an option that many people don't want to think about. That's why they say, I've got to get it all in here because there's nothing the other side. There is no other side. Okay, that's one option. Second option is this one. You live and you die and you recycle. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, you reincarnate, you transmigrate, you do something. So, your, the first one is your body is all there is. The second one is kind of like the Greek idea that your soul or your spirit or your immaterial part of you is trapped within your body, and like the Greeks said. And at death, your body dies, but your soul migrates into the power, the energy of the universe. Wayne Dyer, watch him on PBS. This is his doctrine. And it's, it's, it's the majority of the world in, in the middle, in the eastern part of the world holds this view that you reincarnate, you re, uh, uh, recycle into the energy of the world. And you come back as another life form, maybe as a person. We in America love reincarnation. No, it's a, it's a late creation. It's a late idea. Um, we can't buy this transmigration idea where we become a bug or a, an animal or something. So we reincarnate. Have you ever noticed the people that reincarnate? They've always re- they always reincarnate, and they used to be a king or a queen way back then. They were never like a lowly person, but they were always somebody famous. But that so. But here's the point. Your 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 mind, your experiences, they're all gone, and and you're, you you go into the energy of the universe, whatever that is. Call it God. That means you're God because you're part of that energy. It's kind of all over, and you go into that. So you live and you die and you recycle, but you don't remember anybody. You don't remember any of your memories. There's nothing. The third option is Christianity. Christianity says you live and you die and you resurrect with a resurrected body with all your memories, with every, you know, I mean, just a reunion in the sky, First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, don't grieve like those who have no hope. Grieve like those who have hope that one day we'll be united in the sky. That thus shall we ever be with the Lord and with everyone else. We're gathered together with resurrected bodies and, and we're memories that, that carry on and we're, we're, we're thinking more clearly than we have and our bodies are stronger than they've ever been. And there's a new heaven and there's a new earth. Now, let me ask you a question. Those are the three options. There are no other options than that. You live and you die and you're done. You live and you die and you recycle or you live and you die and then you really live. And you look, you look back in this life on earth in Christianity and you say, I think I was a walking corpse compared to where I am today. I'm so much more alive. I'm so much more... Uh, my, my brain, I, I, whatever issues I had are gone. I've been set free. And I'm, I'm, a new, I'm beyond, it's beyond, Paul says, dream. And, and you'll never even get to what you'll be. If, if you wanted one to be true, which one would you choose? If you're going to 
somebody who's on their deathbed, which would you want to say, this is the hope that you have waiting for you? You're done? You recycle? Or you really are alive? That's why it's interesting to me how people say, well, I reject God. Okay, well, then you got these two options here. Uh, I don't see the... Uh, you just cut the limb off the tree. You like the coyote? You just haven't looked down yet to see you're in really a heap of trouble, right? Right, well, how do we make sure that our name is written in the book of life? Well, John chapter 3, Jesus says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Not will have, but already has present possession. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. That's kind of what we said. You either trust Jesus the side of heaven and find life like you've never found it before, or you, no, you don't, you reject Jesus and you don't find life. You find judgment. The fourth thing I want you to see is there's only one person. Um, sometimes we, when we go through difficult times, we say, I'm getting what I don't deserve. It's not fair. There's only one person that, ever, that walked this earth that got what he didn't deserve. Jesus entered into our violent world and was mocked, beaten, and executed by evil men. He took the full hit of his, this hostile world, and he was completely innocent. It says over and over that he was without sin. Without sin. He knows what it means to be misunderstood, betrayed, mocked, forsaken, unjustly accused, abused, beaten, condemned, and executed by evil men. He understands injustice. He, he suffered injustice. He knows what you're going through because he entered into your world. And that's one of the amazing things that God hasn't stopped the evil in the world, but he entered into the evil of our world so that he understands the evil and he entered it so that he could once and for all stop it without destroying us. Because frankly, the only other way that God could end evil is that he would end us. Because if we're honest, every one of us carries a bit of evil within our soul. At the cross over 2,000 years ago, it looked like wicked men won, but they didn't. Because one day, Paul says in Philippians, he, Jesus, talking about Jesus' ministry on earth, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above, that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This verse basically says that there, it doesn't matter who you are, whether you accept or reject Jesus, everyone one day will bow before Jesus. Maybe, maybe not this side of heaven. But certainly on the next side. Believers will answer for their deeds at the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, and unbelievers will face him at the great white throne. Wise men and women will prepare now for the coming judgment by living this life with eternity in their mind. How are you doing? How are you doing 
living not just for this life, but for the next life? And how are you doing that? You see, you either bow your knee before Jesus this life, or you will do it in the next life. But there's a very big difference between those two times. I want to just close this series because, like I said, we've been talking about the Psalms and a lot of hard questions and a lot of difficult things and dark times. And we have more truth than the psalmist have. We have the cross. The cross of Jesus gives us an eternal hope. The cross shows us that people who have hurt us will be judged one day. And we can say to God, God, I am not a good judge. I am not the judge. You are, so I'm going to turn them over to you. The cross shows us that that the heartbreaking events of life will be overturned one day. I don't know how. I don't know what that looks like in your life. But I know that's going to happen. The cross shows us that God isn't distant. He's intimately involved in our lives. He understands our plight because he entered our world and took the full brunt of its evil, sadness, and pain and overcame it all. So God is involved in our world and he showed that by sending his son and Jesus showed that by giving his life, allowing himself to take the full brunt of the evil in our world. And again, if you wonder, does God care? Is God involved? Just think of the cross. That's what we have today. I want to close with this verse. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He puts it all in perspective. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now, let me just stop there for a minute and say this. Paul was beaten left for dead, stoned. He, I think he had a shipwreck or two in there somewhere. Yeah, I mean, it just, this is not a guy, when he says light and momentary troubles, you would look at that and say, are you kidding me? But he says that. Because he's not comparing it to this life. He's talking about what is going to happen in eternity. He says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not what is on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul basically says, I am putting all my eggs in the eternal basket. And when I get to eternity, I'm going to look back at all the hardship and all the pain and all the evil of this life. And I will say it was nothing compared to what I'm experiencing now. Now, we're in the middle of it, so it's hard for us to say that. But essentially, that's what Paul's saying. Our hope for justice is not this side of heaven. Our hope for justice is the next side. And we shouldn't ask God to come and judge evil because that means we're all going to get judged. That day of judgment is coming, but we need to prepare for it now because no one will miss judgment day. Whether you are a follower of Jesus at the Bema Seat or whether you are not a follower at the great white throne. 
May God examine, help you to examine your heart through the word and through the spirit of God so that you are ready for the return of Jesus, the king and judge when he comes to judge the living and the dead. Stand with me. Let's pray. Father, this certainly is a sobering message for us to, to hear, but may it make a difference in our lives in the way that we live. May we understand that judgment is coming, not just for the wicked, not just for the evil, but for us. That we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Help us to be good stewards of what you've given to us. Help us to be ready for the return of Jesus. Help us to leave judgment up to you. Help us to understand that in the end, we're not very good judges. We think we are, but we're not. Help us to take the burden of judgment off our shoulders and just put it in your hands. It's above our pay grade anyways. And thank you, Father, that when we do stand in judgment, we stand before a righteous, holy, loving God who understands completely not only what we do, but why we do it. And thank you so much that Jesus took the judgment we deserved so that that whole judgment of condemnation and sin and death has been dealt with. If anyone's here today, Father, and they haven't called upon the Lord, may today the day be the day where they bow the knee to Jesus and say, Jesus, you're my only hope. Like the thief on the cross, I give my life to you because you gave your life to me. Thank you for your word today. May it speak to our hearts. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.